Welcome to the December update of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. In this episode, we're going to discuss the latest short treks, which happen to be animated features. They're entitled The Girl Who Made the Stars and Ephraim and Dot. Following that, we'll share some very sad news in the Star Trek family. So Gary, why don't we start off with the animated short track, The Girl Who Made the Stars. Okay, so the episode was written by Brandon Schultz and directed by executive producer Olatunde Onsenasami, who we've seen direct a number of the really good episodes of Discovery over the last two seasons. Um, You probably don't remember, but in Discovery's season two premiere episode, Brother, We were introduced to a voiceover by Michael Burnham recalling an ancient story while preparing to meet her foster brother, Spock. She tells us of a tale from a thousand centuries ago in Africa about a girl who dug her hand into wood ash and threw it into the sky to create the Milky Way. Michael goes on to explain that that a secret message is buried among the stars, visible only to those who hearts we're open enough to receive it. Looking back on this now, we can we can see how this story was a metaphor for the main plot of the Red Angel and the Sphere data that we saw throughout season two. So that story was actually based on a uh, real folktale. There is an ancient African myth about the formation of the stars featuring a young girl. It's a creation myth of the Zem Abatha or Koikoi people of South Africa, explaining how the sun and the celestial bodies came into being. The Koikoi, who called themselves the first people, believed that the stars, planets, insects, and humans were all made of the same material. The sun was an old man who once lived in a hut. They also believed that the stars traveled along the sky as if it were a body of water. In this Short Trek episode, young Michael Burnham is awoken in the middle of the night by a lightning storm near their research station. Michael's father comes into the room to calm his little girl down. She wants to sleep with a light on, but her father assures her that she's not really scared of the dark, but rather scared of the idea of being scared. To explain, he tells her the story of the girl who made the stars. He modifies it to address her fears. I mean, in his version, the first people are hunter-gatherers who have become farmers. They've lived at a time without any night stars. This has caused them to fear the dark, giving their fear the name the night beast. To avoid this creature, the first people prohibit traveling at night. Over time, they see their farmlands becoming infertile from too much overgrowing. The little girl suggests they travel over the mountains to new lands where they can plant their crops there. The elders dismiss her and her idea because the journey would take two days and it would require travel at night. They fear angering the night beasts, but defiantly the The little girl sets out on her own to prove her point, and as the night falls, 
she is beset by her own fears. Now, initially, Michael tried, the little girl tries to hide, awaiting her fate. But suddenly, she sees a light in the night sky. She runs towards where it lands and meets an alien filled with light that recognizes the girl as a courageous warrior. The alien tells the girl that, that her bravery shines brighter than anything she could imagine. And the alien goes on to explain that conquering one's fears are the first step to discovering all the universe has to offer. The being then gives the girl an orb of light to take back to her people to show them that they have nothing to fear. When she opens the gift and the night is filled, the night sky is filled with stars, and her people were never scared of the night again. The girl grew up to be a great explorer, a leader, and eventually becoming queen. Now, young Michael realizes. It was the light inside that guided her, and that there's no reason to be afraid. She decides she no longer even needs her nightlight, and falls asleep, dreaming of the great warrior queen shooting an arrow right at the head of the night beast. The animation style is reminiscent of the 3D modeled figures we've seen in Disney Pixar films. The rendering of light and shadow on three-dimensional model figures is more lifelike, even though the human figures are slightly stylized. The animators did a wonderful job of capturing the wide variety of light in this story, from the yellow ember glow from the campfire and the embers that are flying up into the sky, to the ghostly blue glow of the night sky, even to the purple and magenta tint of the light unleashed from the alien's gift. I mean, it's really a visual feast when you really look at it. Well, I wish I felt the same way about the writing of the episode. Whereas the episode is visually appealing, the story is not inspiring in the way they, I think they want it to be. Changing how the creation of the stars d derived from a little African girl throwing a handful of wooden ash into the sky to emanating from an alien's gift takes away the agency that the girl and her people have in the original story. Creation myths reveal to us how a people interpret the world around them and their place within it. The first people believe that all things were connected. It's a very African point of view to embody the stars with the same sense of humanity that you see in you, your relatives, and village members. This concept is somewhat damaged by the stars being the result of a gift from an alien. Uh, there was a time when people wanted to explain away the mathematical perfection of the Egyptian and Mayan pyramids as examples of interference by alien astronauts. Now, these ancient cultures, or they felt that these ancient cultures must have had an external influence because these uh, these works were so perfect, mm -hmm. and it just seemed like, well, how would these people who you would feel um, uh, they were not as advanced as us? Right, so right. how could they figure out how to build these right. great monuments? Right. And but they did. The yes. the truth is, 
is that they were able to do it. There right. was no alien. And there wasn't there wasn't any interference from any other source. They had all the tools necessary to make the pyramids perfect on all four sides. Yeah, so even though they were a very ancient race. Exactly. So that's why I think both Gary and I feel that the story loses something when an alien comes right. and brings her the means to create the stars. Right. I mean, I understand the moral of the story is that courage comes from within, but I, but the thing I believe is that the very message is undercut by this deus ex machina device that they use in this story. Mm. I mean, we could have gotten to the same conclusion without losing any of the magic or the mystery of the original myth. That is so true. So one other side note is that the episode featured the voice of actor Ken- Kenrick Green reprising his role as Michael Burnham's father. And a young Mike and the young Michael was played by Curie McElfin. Kendrick Kenrick, of course, is Sonequa Martin Green's husband. Yes. Right. So let's now move on to the more satisfying animated uh, short track, Ephraim and Dot. The episode was written by Anthony Marinville and Chris Silvestri. It was directed by first-time director Michael Giancchino, who you may know better as a composer of scores for several TV shows, including Lost, Alias, and Fringe. His film credits include The Incredibles, uh, Star Trek 2009, um, Up, where he got a, actually got an Oscar for his compositions for Up, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Inside Out, Spider-Man Homecoming, and, as well as War of the Planet of the Apes, and Coco. So he's worked for Disney a lot. <laughs> yeah, so Ephraim is the title character, and that character is a tardigrade. Now, remember that the tardigrades were is an alien creature, a very powerful alien creature that we were introduced to in the first season of Discovery in the episode called The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. So when we see this tardigrade, it's flying through the mycelial network looking for a place to lay her eggs. Now suddenly, the USS Enterprise NCC-1701 you, as you know from the original series, yeah. warps and destroys uh, an asteroid that she has laid her eggs on. So Ephraim is curious about this ship and flies around looking uh, in the windows at the crew. And there we see Captain Kirk, Dr. McCoy, and even Khan Noonien sing in the sick bay. And you also hear this audio uh, from Space Seed. So that was your first hint that this was going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Ephraim tries to get inside the ship but doesn't know how. And so Dot, which is a DOT-7 repair bot, as we've seen at the, um, in season, the second season of Discovery, appears out of, uh, out of, uh, out of the blue and sounds an intruder alert and zaps poor Ephraim. But after Dot returns to the ship, Ephraim follows. And as the pair rocket through the corridor, they encounter a vat of blue goo and several laundry piles of red, blue, and gold tunics that just happen to be in the way. (laughs) Um, Dot eventually threatens to zap 
Ephraim again, but she escapes through the ship's conduits and eventually finds a warm place in engineering to safely lay her eggs. Now, just as Ephraim lets her guard down, Dot finds her again. This time, they're ch- they they have this long chase through the Enterprise. And Ephraim is eventually ejected into space while Dot says, snarkily, uh-huh. live long and prosper. <laughs> but Ephraim will not leave her eggs. As the Enterprise goes into warp, Ephraim travels the mycelial network to keep up with them. Um, the chase sequences lovingly pay homage to Star Trek by involving time traveling through a number of scenes from uh, the original series episodes. In this cartoon, we see references to the Man Trap, Space Seed, Who Mourns for Adonis, the Doomsday Machine, Naked Time, and the Savage Curtain with a giant Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we also see references to the Tholian Web and Gary's not-so-favorite episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. The journey ends with an explosion of the Enterprise from the film The Wrath of Khan, and it eventually crashes into the planet as it did in Search for Spock. Ephraim and Dot is a very different animated story from The Girl Who Made the Stars. For instance, it's structured more like a traditional Tom and Jerry or even a Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoon. The story is told primarily through its visual images. The musical score is both used to support what we see on screen as well as make comment on it. This makes sense considering that Giacchino is the director. When Ephraim and Dot get into a wrestling match, the music playing underneath is the battle sequence from Amok Time. Also, as with Roadrunner cartoons, Ephraim never speaks. Dot, in fact, only says one line. The other dialogue in the episode is supplied by excerpts from uh, original series episodes. We get to hear the voices of Kurt and Khan, as well as Sulu once again. Although some commentators have stated that Ephraim and Dot was targeted specifically at children, I would say that it was designed to be enjoyed by a long-time Star Trek fan, as well as any new younger fans. Much like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, there are many layers to the humor and the structure of the cartoon and what it's saying in the episode. Sometimes um, someone can continue to enjoy a cartoon through repeated viewings as the viewer matures and learns more about Star Trek. I think that's going to be the case here. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely think it's for... Um, generations to sit down and watch yeah. because everybody is going to get something different out of it and they're going to truly enjoy it. I've talked to friends of mine who start, who are longtime Star Trek fans and they just raved over this because yes. they got all their references, they knew what they were saying. That's right. They, they, they picked up on the musical cues that were, under, under, that were playing underneath and yet I know that there are kids that just went bonkers when they see Ephraim and Dot go through that corridor and yeah. hit and hit the blue goo and hit all those oh, yeah. those laundry piles. I mean, that's the kind of thing that 
Yes, you can you can enjoy it on that level, but there are these other things that you find how that that when you get more exposure, that'll deepen your relationship with the episode. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, so I would say that please check it out and see if you can pick up any of the things that we've been talking about or anything we might have missed. Anything we might have missed. All right, so let's move on to other Star Trek news, and I must say the Death Angel has been busy. Yeah, it's been it's been kind of sad. This has been really sad news. So Dorothy Fontana, also known as DC Fontana, um, died recently at the age of eighty. She lived in Los Angeles, so she died of cancer on December second. Miss Fontana was part of the Star Trek universe from its early days, working alongside its creator, Gene Roddenberry, as a story editor and writer. On the original series, Miss Fontana was best known among fans for her work on Spock, the half-human, half-Vulcan Starfleet officer portrayed by Leonard Nimoy. In a 2013 interview with StarTrek.com, the franchise's official website, Miss Fontana said she thought her greatest contribution to the franchise had pr- had primarily been the development of Spot, that is, um, uh, Vulcan and the history, background, culture from which he sprang. Miss Fontana wrote for all three seasons of the original series. She later wrote for other science fiction shows, including Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, The Six Million Dollar Man and Babylon 5, as well as influential shows outside of that genre, including Dallas, The Waltons, and Bonanza. Yeah, one of the things that you missed is that she also wrote The Yesteryear, which was one of the episodes for the animated series. All right. Again, focusing on Spock and his background. All right. Yeah. So also we come to you with, with sad news of the death of Robert Walker Jr., who is best known as Charlie X from the classic early Star Trek episode of the same name. He was the son of Hollywood stars Robert Walker and Jennifer Jones, and he died December 5th in Malibu, according to family members, at the age of 79. The New York native portrayed the twitchy, callow title character in the second episode of Star Trek's pioneering first season in 1966. And he also handled the title role of the no- of the notable 1960s feature Ensign Pulver, as well as young Billy Young. In it was his role in the Federation space, however, that earned Walker his most lasting screen legacy. Walker was 26 when he played the callow 17-year-old Charlie Evans, aka Charlie X, on the second episode of the series. And the petulant Charlie came aboard the U.S. Enterprise as a rescue castaway who survived 14 years of solitary confinement amidst the wreckage of a downed transport ship. The memorable episode was pinned by Dorothy Fontana and takes a dark turn when the orphan teen dangerous secret is and formidable mental powers are eventually revealed. Yeah, that really is one of the best Star Trek episodes written. I mean, from all points of view, you know, the acting, the writing, right. I mean, it's just very, very good. It's just, it's just right, you know, it's that, that she who actually wrote that episode dies a few days after, you know, he passes. That's right. So, no, no, a few days before, excuse me, a few days before he passes. But so, it's, but yeah, it's just a sad moment. Yeah. 
So, and we have another, yet another yeah, death to yeah. report. This one really hurt. Yeah. Uh, and this is the death of Rene Abergenois, uh, best known to Star Trek fans as Odo in Deep Space Nine. So he died on December 8th of lung cancer at his home in Los Angeles. He was 79. Mm-hmm. Rene played hundreds of comic and dramatic characters throughout his long career and moved easily among television, film, and stage. In fact, I was telling uh, Gary earlier that I had actually seen him on Broadway um, uh, in a play, and I remember it very vividly. Mm -hmm. You know, it was before Deep Space Nine came on, so um, he definitely will be missed. But he often played scene-stealing characters who injected comic relief or snark or a plot wrinkle into the proceedings. In MASH, the film uh, in, that was uh, released in 1970, yep. uh, this was the first of Robert Altman's films in which Rene appeared. He uh, played the part of Father Mukehi, the chaplain for an offbeat medical unit during the Korean War. That same year, in the Broadway musical Coco, which starred Catherine Hepburn as Coco Chanel, he played a flamboyantly gay fashion designer and won a Tony Award for that role. Mm-hmm. Major roles on the long on long-running television shows over three decades included Benson in the 1980s, Deep Space Nine in the 1990s, and Boston Legal and uh, in the 2000s. Uh, which made him uh, a f- uh, made his face familiar to millions, even if most people may not immediately be able to put a name to his face or pronounce his name. Or pro- <laughs> okay, across almost sixty years as a professional actor, he was rarely not in demand. Right. Renee was an amateur artist, enjoying drawing, painting, photography, and sculpture. At Star Trek conventions, he would sometimes sell personalized cartoons to fans, with the proceeds going to Doctors Without Borders, his favorite charity. Another recipient of his artwork was William Shatner, (laughs) uh, his co-star in Boston Legal, and of course we know him as Captain Kirk. Mm -hmm. The two men shared a Star Trek connection, uh, obviously. And Renee said, he loved my artwork, uh, he said, addressing uh, to an audience at a 2017 fan event in Denver. He always reminded me, he'd say, you know, in the bathroom of my office, there's a whole wall of your drawings. Hmm. And then they say the look on Renee's face uh, brought down the house. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing that they have in, in connection is that uh, Rene Aubergeois also played a villainous um, Starfleet officer in Undiscovered Com- Com- Country. One of the oh, that's right. So that's he, right. in fact, he ends up being seen as a an assassin. Yeah. That in that episode, right, so, right. He takes off the face. They, and they pull off his. They pull off the mask, thinking it's a Klingon, when actually 
it's a human it's in, a human in, right. in, in makeup and so yeah um he's in that episode so he so that's all another aspect of his connection to the star trek lore mm. and finally in this sad mor- uh, memorial we've got going is we talk about the death of um the husband of marina Sirtis. Michael Lamper, who was an actor, musician, rock guitarist, um, who died in his sleep on December 7th of this year. Um, Marina announced her her husband's passing on Twitter and told her fans that she was going to be going away for a while. Right. So she could so she could deal with the, yeah, the she grief. could process it. Right. Yeah, that's that's I mean that's unexpected because I. Uh, I think he was only 61. Yeah. Yeah, so still a young man. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about him, well, the other thing about Twitter as, a, as an avenue, the, the day Rene Aubergeois was, uh, had passed, mm-hmm. all of the Star Trek-connected actors from all of the series, TV, from the right. movies as well, just unburdened themselves of the, the sense of loss that they had. Oh, yeah. On Twitter. And it really... It was really kind of overwhelming when you saw just how much his his peers cared about him. Yeah, and, they and, loved him, and uh, I mean, apparently he was a very very nice mm-hmm, man. Mm-hmm. You know, very so nice. all of them who had who have um, Twitter accounts were all talking about the loss, and it was it was a very powerful memorial. Okay, so in closing, we'll be back after the new year with another podcast. And obviously, after the new year, we'll be uh, concentrating on the Picard series. That's right. We'll be back with regular episodes start, starting with those, 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 that series. But until then... Listen to Star Trek Age of Discovery on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Like, subscribe, and follow the show on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, at our Facebook page, or our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where you can find additional articles on, on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues. Also, email us at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.